This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. 24 Sussex Drive. It's the official residence of the Prime Minister. It's a money pit for Canadian taxpayers. It is in disrepair. It needs to be fixed up. This is one very expensive fixer-upper. The renovations could cost... $35 million. That's according to one estimate. I bet you it could go even higher than that. Some people want to just tear the thing down instead of paying for it to fix it up. What would you say? Would you say renovate it, tear it down, or let it rot? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Also, phone me on the buzz line today. Leave me a voicemail there. Should we renovate and repair 24 Sussex Drive, or should we get out the bulldozer and the wrecking ball and just tear it down? 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. One of the uh, stories we're going to cover for you on the program today is what should happen to 24 Sussex Drive. That, of course, is the official residence of the Prime Minister of Canada. I mean, interesting experience for Justin Trudeau after kind of pretty much growing up there as a kid. Uh, then it ends up as his official uh, residence. 24 Sussex Drive, though, this thing is falling apart. This is a fixer-upper of the highest order and also a very high price tag to fix up 24 Sussex Drive. How much could it cost to repair and renovate the official residence of the Prime Minister? How about an estimated $35 million? That's just one estimate. I got a feeling it would probably go higher than that. Anyone's ever done a home renovation knows it always costs more. Always. Every single time. What should happen? to 24 Sussex Drive. Do we repair this thing? Do we renovate it? Or is it time to get out the bulldozer, the wrecking ball, and just put it out of its misery? Let's check in now with Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Get her take on it. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Okay, you've been to 24 Sussex Drive, I think, have you? Yes, I have. Um, oh, tell me about the, that. The privileged ones. Yeah, I've been inside and outside for a couple of different parties uh, through different uh, governments. Uh, you're invited there as a member of the press gallery at least wow. twice a year. So a lot of us get to go in there and take a look around. What was? The, when's the last time you were there? I was there probably about four years ago uh, for a garden party and then also inside uh, for a Christmas party. And, you know, like former Prime Minister Stephen Harper said at the outset, um, it's the nicest public housing you'll ever see. (laughs) So (laughs) you need to preface all the criticisms of that. I mean, compared to most of our homes and what a lot of folks, especially in the lower mainland and B.C. can afford, you know, let's not sniff at this thing. It is a big, fancy mansion, but (laughs) it's got a lot of problems. Uh, it's drafty, the plaster's cracking, uh, the flooring needs replacing, and the big problem with it is that because it's so old, it's full of nasty stuff, like Ooh. lead and asbestos. And Ooh. because previous prime ministers were so loath to upgrade it, um, because they were worried about getting a lot of criticism for doing something dumb, like, you know, building a closet just for your shoes like they did during the Mulroney era, um, it was kind of let go. Um, And so now it requires a heck of a ton of work to upgrade this thing. Okay. $35 million to upgrade it. Is that to me, like, I don't know. Like, I bet you it would cost more. What do you think? 
we're guessing it would cost a lot more than that at the Canadian yeah. Taxpayers Federation because, like you just pointed out, number one, home renovations always go higher. And two, if you combine that with government, oh, my gosh, <laughs> that, they usually oh, no. triple uh, the price tag of their estimates. Yeah. 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 Okay. What do you think should be done with it? The CTF thinks that this thing should be torn down, and if we want to, we can rebuild an official residence for the Prime Minister on that same site. So a lot of folks may not know the grounds of 24 Sussex are pretty special. Uh, Mm. You drive down, obviously, Sussex, and it's number 24, and if you're driving towards Montreal, if you're going east, it's on your left-hand side, and the great big wrought iron gates, and it's nice and secure, and it overlooks uh, the, the river. And so the, the land itself is pretty snazzy, and we could rebuild it right there. But the catch there is we want it rebuilt with a decent budget. You know, rebuild it, but make it reasonable. Have it completely updated so that it's safe and for everybody living in it. It can also be secured, you know, from the you know, standpoint of the RCMP and all that stuff. But what would be really cool is what if we made this like a, you know, Canadian idol, but for a residence? So we get to vote on our upgrades. Should we have <laughs> granite countertops? Should we have wooden countertops? We can all vote on it and try to keep the, the cost under, under budget. I don't know about you, but I used to spend a lot of time watching, you know, Canadian shows on updating your homes like Scott McGilvery and, you know, Mike Holmes. We could yeah. have a lot of fun with this. Yeah, well, you know, maybe, maybe, right? get, maybe get people to... Put some money in the kitty to help pay for it, too. <laughs> Keep the cost under control is the main thing. This doesn't have to be a ridiculous amount of blown dough. Okay. We could keep this reasonable. I'm wondering, Chris, about whether it makes sense to knock it down, bulldoze it, and build over, just do like a teardown, build a new place, or would it be more cost-effective to Canadian taxpayers to actually renovate it? Because I was looking at one estimate from the National Capital Commission it says, okay, it could be $34.5 million to renovate it, but it be, could be closer to $39 million to tear it down and build a new one. So wouldn't it be cheaper just to fix it up? Uh, at the CTF, we try not to go with the National Capital Commission's <laughs> estimates because uh, for your listeners, basically what they are is a form of municipal government in charge of park land. In, oh. in Ottawa, and they, they spend your money. Like, literally the head of the NCC for years would expense her coffee, muffin, and driver every morning. So they're not a good group uh, to go to for an estimate. Uh, we think that more bids should come in. Uh, hey, take, take bids from all comers. Yeah. See how much they would charge to tear the thing down, clean yeah. up the area, and then rebuild. Because right now, when they're proposing renovations, um, when you're doing really old buildings, and I saw this happen time and again in Ottawa, where they updated, say, the old train station or they updated the Wellington building, those buildings, ugh, they're full of nasty stuff. And when they have to send workers in there to renovate, rightly so, they're in like full airlock hazmat outfits for years in some cases. Um, and it costs a ton of money. Keep in mind, we're in the middle of a huge renovation of Centre Block, which is the middle big Parliament building on Parliament Hill. Oh, yeah. So we're already forking over a lot of reno dough. Maybe it's better to tear it down and rebuild. Also, keep in mind, where the Trudeau family right now is living is on the Rideau Hall grounds, and they call it the Rideau Cottage. For most of us, it's a mansion, but right. on Rideau, Rideau Hall grounds, it's, it's a cottage. Maybe we could just make that the official residence. Yeah, he's not living at 24 Sussex right now. 
No, no, right? they're not. They is haven't that, been living there because, for a long time. Is that because it's in such bad shape? Is that why he's not yeah. living there? Yeah. Yeah. When they first moved in, uh, there were some compl- apparently there were some complaints about the kitchen not being good enough and the upper the upper floor is not being quite good enough, and all the bedrooms are upstairs. And you know, to be fair, they've got little kids, um, big, huge staircase. You know, it's not really that functional for a young family. So they've been living in Rideau Cottage, which is again pretty fancy. Um, if you were driving around in Vancouver, this is something you'd see on Marine Drive. It's one of those kind of three-story, big brick walk-up homes. Okay, speaking to Chris Sims about 24 Sussex Drive, the official residence of the Prime Minister. Okay, Chris, what about just the general concept of an official residence for Trudeau or anyone who's the Prime Minister of Canada, just in principle or as a concept? I mean, do you believe at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation that we should have an official residence for the prime minister, or, you know, if we're really going to pinch our pennies, could you say Trudeau's a rich guy, he's a millionaire, or maybe he should pay for his own place? What would you say to that? That's a good question. And it's with the CTF, we're always trying to balance, as you say, pinching pennies, which we absolutely believe in, with common sense and practicality. Right. So the question is, should the elected head of a G7 country uh, just get a housing stipend? and live wherever he or she wants. Good question. Uh, You could make that financial argument, but then you have to start wondering about the financial costs of securing that area. So it's better in many cases to keep them contained in one geographic area officially so they can harden the perimeter, they can have all their proper motion detecting cameras, which they do. The whole area is miked all through that area around the trees and stuff. Mm. It's all microphoned, apparently. Um, And so it's pretty high tech. And so it probably, we're guessing, probably is more cost effective to keep them one location. Same thing at Rideau Hall. The governor general is, of course, the queen's representative and the the actual head of state, technically, for Canada. And so wherever he or she is doing, we need to keep them safe. So it's already hardened from a security standpoint, which is why Trudeau is living there. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Keep voting on that hot question of the day on this today at CKNW on Twitter. Let's talk about those teenage murder suspects from Vancouver Island now. The story that transfixed Canada this summer. Briar Schmigelski, Cam McLeod. Those are the two young men who were the prime suspects in those three murders in northern B.C. in July. The murders sparked a Canada-wide manhunt for the two teens. Of course, they were found dead two weeks later in northern manitoba all right now the aftermath it appears one of the young men here briar schmigelski recorded a cell phone video before his death now his father alan wants to see that video let's speak to his lawyer now sarah lehman she's a criminal defense lawyer she's with the sarah lehman law group she represents alan schmigelski in this matter i'm very pleased to welcome her hi Hi there. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's. Um, I find this a fascinating story. How, how do we know that Briar Schmigelski recorded a video in the first place? Has that been confirmed? Well, it seems to have been confirmed through some correspondence uh, between myself and the RCMP, which was anonymously leaked to the media earlier this week. Yeah, okay. So you have the, the RCMP has told you that this video exists. Yeah, there seems to be some admission in that um, email that was, um, again, leaked uh, earlier this week. Yeah. What, what does it say? What is the admission? 
Well, simply there's a video that's been described as a last will and testament of Briar. Um, right. So there's not really anything else that we know about it at this point. Uh, it's just that it is part of an ongoing investigation. And so the RCMP is extremely reluctant to have uh, my client view that video in spite of the fact that he is Briar's biological father. Okay, why would the RCMP be reluctant to let the father see this video? I mean, that's a great question. Um, again, they're falling back on the rationale that it is part of an ongoing investigation, uh, but um, it appears that other family members, uh, or at least Briar's mother, has had an opportunity to view it. Uh, so my client, as Briar's father, wishes to have a similar opportunity to do so as well. Okay, the two parents are, they're separated, are they not together anymore? That's right. Okay, how, how do we know that the mother in this case has has seen the video or, or at least or at least I guess there's some suggestion that there's been she's been given a, a kind of a detailed description of what's on the video right yeah, or, or, or um, did she actually see it uh, it's unclear whether she's had an opportunity to view it or whether there was a description or a transcript that was offered, but um, it appears that um, she has had some uh, opportunity, at least, to review the contents of that um, last will and testament, whereas my client has had no similar opportunity afforded to him. Right, and how did how did she get that opportunity to see the video? Did, did the RCMP show it to her? No, I'm really not privy to the details on that. Okay, we just we just understand that she did somehow see. It. Why why does the father you represent Alan Schmigelski here, his the father in the matter? Why does he want to see the video? Well, why would any other father want to see the video uh, that is their uh, their child's last will and testament? I mean, it really comes back to that. Uh, this yeah. is an absolutely sensational case, um, and, you know, it's extremely unusual circumstances. But at the end of the day, we really can't lose sight of the fact that this is a father, and a father who's lost his only son and only child. And so he's seeking emotional closure here, and he believes that he has a right to be able to view this last will and testament of his son. Okay, when we call it a last will and testament, is that... I mean, it's not legally a last will and testament, though, right? Well, that would uh, require some interpretation by our courts as to, you know, what exactly amounts to a last will and testament in the province that it was taken in and whether or not that's applicable here in the province of British Columbia. Hmm. Okay, speaking of Sarah Lehman, she is the lawyer for Alan Schmigelski, the father of Briar Schmigelski and his fight to see this video recorded on this cell phone. The, the two men here, you got Briar Schmigelski and also Cam McLeod, this other young man who we're told committed suicide. What do we know about Cam McLeod? Did he record a video or does anybody know? I have no information on that. Okay. Um, when you say that the father believes he has a right to see this video, I mean, as a lawyer, what, what would you say? What can you say about that? Does he have a legal right? Is there any case law that would indicate he does have a legal right to see this? Yes, certainly there's an argument to be made here that the parent of an individual who's now deceased has a right to be able to view the last will and testament of their child. Um, you know, but uh, that is, again, going to be left up to the courts to interpret if it even does get that far. Okay, what is the latest sort of public position on this from the RCMP? I mean, have they given? Have they said you, your client cannot see the video, or maybe he can see it, or are they even acknowledging that it exists? Well, at this point, uh, they are acknowledging its existence, but they're not willing to get grant access to, 
sue the video to my client. Um, so it is a developing situation uh, as we move forward. Okay, and what can you do about that? Can you can you take uh, action in the courts to try and compel the RCMP to produce this for your client? Let them see the video. Well, at this stage, we are exploring a number of different legal options and uh, trying to decipher which one of those is going to be the best moving forward. Again, in these extremely unusual circumstances um, yeah. that we found ourselves under. How is your client doing? I know Alan Schmigelski, the father here, he'd given several very emotional media interviews here. So the public got to, got, got to hear quite a bit from him over this during this saga. How is he doing now? Well, as you can imagine, he is extremely upset. I mean, again, this all goes back to a father who's lost their child under extremely tragic and unimaginable circumstances. So his emotional state is one that, I mean, we can't really even put ourselves in his shoes uh, unless you're a parent who's lost a child yourself, which, you know, is absolutely unspeakable. Uh, you can't really imagine what my client is going through, uh, particularly given, you know, how this is all unfolded uh, in the public eye for him. So this is really, really difficult for my client to deal with. Yeah, such strange circumstances as well. Have you ever have you ever worked on a, a case, that, anything like this, or this just seems kind of unprecedented in some ways? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else like this. This is kind yeah. of the first time that we've seen anything like this. So this is an unprecedented situation that we're finding ourselves in. So we're just simply trying to navigate it uh, the very best that we can. Right, right. What's, what's your next step now? Well, that's something that we're going to have to determine moving forward. Okay, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, you bet. That's Sarah Lehman. She is a criminal defense lawyer. She's with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. She represents Alan Schmigelski in this matter. He is the father of Briar Schmigelski, one of those two Vancouver Island teenage murder suspects. Let's keep talking about legal marijuana now and marijuana edibles, legal version coming to Canada this fall. So the federal government through Health Canada getting set to bring in regulations around cannabis edibles. That's coming in October. Lot of speculation about what will be allowed and what won't. What about cannabis infused gummies? Look at this uh, headline in the Globe and Mail. Cannabis gummies unlikely to appear on legal market shelves because of the appeal to children. That's in the rules from Health Canada right now. They will not allow cannabis products that appeal to young persons. Could that mean no gummies for you? They are going to look at various elements of products as they're proposed. Uh, they'll look, when it comes to uh, cannabis edibles, they'll be looking at things like the shape, the color, the flavor, the name, the packaging. Is it going to have cartoon characters on it? Are the gummies going to be in the shape of the classic gummy bear? Would that be allowed if it appeals to a young person? A Health Canada official tells the Globe and Mail, no, they would not allow that. Let's check into this now and talk about it further with my guest, Jody Emery. She is a well-known cannabis rights activist. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Jody. Hey, thank you for having me. What What do you think of this uh, this interesting kind of fight here about what's going to be allowed and what's not going to be allowed? Cannabis gummies, should those be legal? Well, 
It certainly sounds like nanny statism at its finest. Uh, this is unnecessary overregulation with no actual problem that needs to be addressed, and it's going to create a whole host of problems. The first thing to look at is whether these products are actually hurting children, and the answer is no. Even if some young people do get access to cannabis edibles, when they use them, they get maybe sick, they go to the hospital because it's legal to now seek help if needed, and they're fine the next day. But when you look at other substances like alcohol, you know, children get access to that. There's no childproof lids. There's no warning labels. And you can get alcohol slushies and alcohol ice cream and alcohol chocolates and labeled on Snapple and soda pop and all the things that kids drink and consume have alcohol in them too. But we have reasonable regulations. So this overreaction is going to create a lot of problems for the producers of cannabis edibles and the consumers, the responsible adults who use these products. Okay, is there not, though, a reasonable concern, let's say among parents who might be worried that if you bring out cannabis edibles that look like candy or marketed like candy, that that's not necessarily a good thing for kids? Like just last month, uh, we saw how uh, there was a product appeared on shelves in California called Stony Patch Kids, and it was made, it was kind of a, a bit of a ripoff of Sour Patch Kids, the kind of, you know, the gummies that kids like to eat. So, so instead of Sour Patch Kids, it's called Stony Patch Kids. I mean, something like that, that, you know, clearly would appeal to children. Do you think that should be allowed? Well, funny enough, uh, back in the day in 2005 and six, I edited an article about a California company that was getting in trouble with the law for copyright infringement for using the names like Reese's Pieces and similar names to other brands. So these goods have been around for a very long time. And if you talk to the people who actually use edibles, the seniors who use them to sleep and the people who use them for Alzheimer's and seizures and cancer treatment, all of the people using these products prefer it as a gummy or a small edible. So when the government wants reduced dosages, you're going to have to eat 10 packages of gummies just to get the medical dose you need. And that's going to make people sick on sugar and food coloring and all the different additives that go into consumables. So we have to look at whether this is actually a problem for kids. And if it is, and it might be in some cases, we need to talk about responsible parenting. Keep your Mm. stuff locked up and talk to your kids. But we know that children are actually being killed from eating Tide Pods and laundry detergent and all sorts of other products around every household. Cannabis isn't really the problem. This overreaction is just going to create all sorts of issues for the adult consumers. And bear in mind, many children actually use cannabis as medicine for seizures, for Trevette syndrome, for all sorts of ailments. So we have to stop worrying about the kids and cannabis Mm. because Cannabis isn't what's hurting them. It's pharmaceutical drugs, alcohol, laundry detergent, and sugary junk food. Okay, I'm speaking to cannabis activist Jody, Jody Emery, and we're talking about whether gummies, cannabis gummies, will be legalized by the federal government. You know, it's interesting to see a debate over this, Jody, at a time when it's clear that these cannabis gummies are extremely popular. Like, in fact, among cannabis edibles... There's, been, there's lots of evidence that the gummy 
is number one. Uh, there was a survey done of Canadians by the Deloitte company that asked them what is their most preferred edible format. Number one answer, the gummy, followed by cookies, brownies, and chocolate. But gummy, number one. And in the United States, I mean, aren't they selling millions of these gummies south of the border? Oh, absolutely. And it's being done responsibly with reasonable regulations. I'm not saying let's have a free-for-all and start handing out cannabis-infused gummy bears to the children on the schoolyard. Nobody's asking (laughs) for that, you know? Right? No one's asking for that. But when we look at how these products should be regulated, we need to do it with a responsible frame of mind, not a fear-based hysteria. Because, again, that's creating more problems than actually exist in the first place. And it seems, like you said, people love these products, so the government says you can't have them. That's exactly how the entire legalization program has unfolded. We can't have our craft cannabis. We can't have cannabis lounges. We can't have cannabis culture stores and other stores and dispensaries. We can't have advertising. We can't have jobs and travel rights. So Cannabis Prohibition 2.0 is really flawed, but that means we need to all pressure our elected officials to make things better and to loosen up the regulations to be reasonable, not over the top, which ends up just costing us all and creating problems and getting everyone scared about the kids when really, if we're worried about kids, let's talk about the junk food and sugary candy that gets marketed and pushed in their faces every day and that's an addictive drug that causes harm to young ones so Mm. we need to worry about the real threat to kids and the fact that they're even on pharmaceutical drugs and antipsychotics and antidepressants this is going up by 30 percent the prescribing to young people of drugs so again let's be reasonable and remember that cannabis is actually medicine for many children who are suffering so let's make sure everybody who needs and wants access for responsible use, has the access they need and deserve. Okay, okay, Jody. the The government has said they are going to legalize edibles, so that's that's happening. But I guess what we're we need to see is the nitty gritty regulations, and that's coming in October. Do you think? Would you have any concerns if the government turned around and said, "Okay, we'll let you sell gummies, but uh, the gummy cannot be in the shape of a, a cartoon character or something. It cannot be." bright rainbow colors of blues and orange and yellow it has to be like gray and it can't have any flavor like tutti fruity or watermelon it's just got to be kind of some neutral tasteless kind of gray blob would that be okay (laughs) i don't know let's say they do the exact same thing to all alcohol and then we're even. But, in you know, alcohol actually hurts and kills people every day, and cannabis does not. Cannabis is safer than alcohol. So, again, we, we shouldn't be putting in crazy regulations about colors and shapes. Obviously, you can't have cannabis edibles in a package with Dora the Explorer on it that says for ages <laughs> zero to five. You know, that's yeah. outrageous. Nobody wants that. But we need to be right. reasonable about these regulations. And okay. I don't know, there's also an election right after those regulations yeah. are supposed to come into force. So let's call on every party to give people reasonable regulations and stop treating adults like infantile children that need to be watched over when it comes to cannabis but everything else is a (laughs) free-for-all jody emery is my guest scott and langley yeah good morning mike how are you happy monday listen uh you know what i'm with jody on this uh she makes absolutely logical sense 
she really does. I mean, like she said, zero to five, you know, for a package of these things, age-wise, is not going to be there. I mean, anybody with half an ounce of sense can understand that. You know, Mike, if, if we've legalized, I say to everybody, if we've legalized the use of cannabis, what difference does it make how you take it in? You know, whether you yeah. smoke it, eat it, drink it, whatever the case may be, I have in the past used, uh, it's, it's a little vial of oil, it's, it's cannabis oil that screws into it, a little electric device, that's, it's no bigger than a fountain pen. And this thing is very convenient, it bothers no one, and this place that manufactures okay. these things was just recently raided, so that's no oh. longer available, oh. Oh. you know? But anyway, does it matter? Does it okay. really matter how you sell this stuff? Scott, thank public. you for the call. Thank, thank you for the call, man. Thank you for the call. I think you got your point across there very well. Jason in Aldergrove, hi. How you doing? Good. What do you think? Yeah, so I don't have a problem how they market it or bring it out. My problem is, you know, if you can't even go out and buy menthol cigarettes because it caters to children, they say, then why should oh. we be any different? Yeah, right. I mean, if you can have flavored tobacco, do they sell that, Jody? Like, can you sell flavored tobacco? It's illegal well, the now. Government cracked, the government cracked down on that, and they have removed it. But let's remember that tobacco causes lung cancer and kills people every day, and cannabis doesn't. But again, you should be free to use it if you want to and to have harm reduction options available. But the government well, trying to eliminate it makes it worse. Well, I guess the caller's point is if they, if they outlawed menthol cigarettes, why should flavored pot be allowed? Well, I think the government shouldn't outlaw menthol cigarettes. I think that's hmm. a bizarre law, but Canada is a nation of overregulation. We like to make a lot of laws to make a lot of work for a lot of bureaucrats at a lot of cost to taxpayers. So I think this is another one of those making a lot of rules to make a lot of work okay. scenarios. Stephen in Maple Ridge, hi. Good afternoon. Uh, I have to agree with Jody. Uh, if we're If kids are mistaking gummy bears... For, you know, marijuana, uh, cannabis, gunny bears. What else are they mistaking? I just bought some bleach tablets that go in my toilet. They look like lifesavers. So do we outlaw those as well? I know it sounds silly, but I think that's the whole point. The overregulation of something that's illegal yeah. is silly. Yeah. Have a okay. Good day. Thanks for the call. Margaret and Langley, hi. Yes, hello, Mike. Good day. Uh, I want to say that with growing children, they say now they've proven that uh, the brain does not stop developing till age 25, which actually shocks me because you had a whole bunch of children by that age. Um, but anyway, the developing brains of a child and teenager, and why in the shape of a gummy bear? This smacks of collusion and stupidity. These men, they don't care a toss. They're just out to deal the stuff. Some of them are selling it, and it is a dangerous drug. In the UK, it comes under the Dangerous Drug Act, and if you're caught dealing it over there, it can be an unlimited fine and in the slammer for up to 15 years. So it's too slack here. Everything's too liberal here. And these men, they can go to the playgrounds. It happened in England. My girlfriend got a letter from the school. They were luring 10-year-olds or so, and they sent a letter home with the child, luring them and giving them these things covered, you know, with candy, but underneath it's a drug. Margaret, thank you for the call. Well, we're certainly not going to turn back the clock to making marijuana illegal again and throwing people in the slammer for it. But what about her point, Jody, about why should you have a, a gummy in the shape of a gummy bear? Couldn't you have it a more neutral shape so it's not in the shape oh, of a candy? Yeah. yeah, certainly. You could make them shaped like wine gums. 
And wine gums, of course, are named after alcohol, and they're candy sold to children. <laughs> so, uh, we, again, let's be reasonable about the actual harm being posed. And, and quite frankly, th- the idea of people going to playgrounds and selling weed candies to children yeah, is yeah. It's an old tale that we've heard many, many times, but hasn't really played out quite in reality. And again, if it does happen on the rare occasion that it does, it pales in comparison to all the real threats to our children's safety. Let's go to Robin in Vancouver. Hi, Robin. Yeah, well, as long as they don't they don't sell marijuana products to kids, you know, and underage kids, uh, I would, you know, they they can sell a, this marijuana candy or whatever it is to adults, but not kids. Well, yeah, I mean, if you thanks for the call. I mean, if you can sell the gummies in a secure package, and then like. You said earlier, Jody, I mean, it gets down to kind of some parental common sense as well. I mean, if you got these gummy products at your home, you just keep them somewhere where your your kids, obviously, you're not going to find them. Denise in Vancouver, hi. Yeah, I'm on Team Jody here. Um, I can go to a, a liquor store and consume creamsicle-flavored vodkas. I can get a box of chocolate liqueurs. I can come home and make jello shots. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I, I think we need to parent our children and make sure that they don't have access to our alcohol or our cannabis. But this is just overkill on the government's regulate, regulatory policies. You know, give us the freedom mm-hmm. to consume it how we want. Let us parent our kids. But to say we can't have a cannabis gummy is just ridiculous. Well, then you better outlaw the chocolate liqueurs because I sure saw Mm. those passed around many Christmases when I was growing up. (laughs) Okay, Denise, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze in one more. Victor and Burnaby, hi. Hi there. Uh, Yeah, for um, we've got jurisdictions in the states, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, that have been doing this for years, marijuana in all kinds of different forms. Right. Jody, maybe, maybe it would be good, Jody, for you and your resources to find out what the actual statistics are of what's going on down there, whether it do harm or good. Look at the tax incentives that uh, have all been... I've got to say goodbye yeah, to you because we're up, we're up against the clock, but they're selling a ton of gummies down in those states that you just mentioned. Uh, Jody, thank you for coming on today. Of course, anytime. Thanks for the chance to talk. You bet. I appreciate it. Jody Emery, she is a cannabis rights activist. You didn't get through on the open line, phone the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail there, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Got a new ICBC rate structure coming at you. Now, if you are a good driver, remember what the government said here. If you're a good driver, the government thinks you should pay less. If you are a bad driver, maybe you should get set to pay more. Here's the thing, though. I wonder if some people think they're a good driver, and ICBC might say, no, you know what? Actually, you're a bad driver, and we're going to wallop you here with higher insurance rates. Richard Zussman, Global News reporter, is on this one today. Hey, Richard, thanks for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so this is a key story here. This is going to be a big one coming up this fall. When is the government rolling this out? When are we going to find out more? Yeah, so already people are experiencing nice and close. The way it works right now Talk is nice that, and close, uh, the way it's working right now is that people had 45 days in advance to renew your insurance. So we're right now in that sweet window where is if your insurance expires after September 1st, then uh, you can already be renewing. So ICBC told me last week that more than 15,000 people have already renewed under the new system. We're seeing... 
based on their numbers, 55% of people are paying less, 45 are paying more or the same. I don't expect that trend will continue. It may be an anomaly. It's a small sample size we're looking at at this point. Like I had one guy sent me a message this morning saying 14 years, clean driving record, lives in the lower mainland, renewed his insurance early under the new system, and he's paying $25 per month more. So that's a substantial increase over the entire year of, you know, almost 300 bucks uh, for a guy who, based on what information he's given me, is a good driver. So we'll have to see. The Does big, he have nothing on his record? Like so That's what he told me. The big issue huh. here is about listing. Yeah. And so your insurance renewal will look different this time around because you have to list drivers. The primary driver will account for 75% of your rate. So if the primary driver is experienced, uh, gets the full discount, doesn't have any at-fault crashes, doesn't have any spe- excessive speeding tickets, distracted driving, impaired driving. But then the rest is made up of the highest risk person that you list. So if you have people in your household who are inexperienced drivers and you list them, then your rates will likely go up. So in a lot of households, that will be a kid who's just starting to drive uh, or a spouse who may have little experience driving. The other thing that this is going to hit hard, and I don't think we understand the full extent of it yet, are small businesses. So if you're a business like a florist or a realtor or um, uh, one of these uh, maid services that use these vehicles to get around and you may have employees who oh, are students yeah. or inexperienced drivers, you must list them on the insurance. And the rates are already higher for this type of vehicle. You could be looking at increases in the hundreds Of dollars, if not more per year. So we're still trying, and ICBC, because there's so many options now, things you have to list, can't give people estimates because you have to make decisions. And it's going to take a while to understand the full extent of what these costs are going to be on people. Okay, that's a fascinating kind of example you just cited there, Richard. If if someone's running a small business and there are multiple people driving, driving maybe a small fleet of vehicles, right? Right. Uh, I mean, it just takes one bad apple in the in the mix there as an occasional driver to get bumped up as the riskiest driver on the list exactly. right so you could be you could you know a person in that situation even though as the car owner you might have a squeaky clean record but you have a, a higher risk driver who might occasionally drive that vehicle you're going to get walloped and i'm sure right? there's lots of small business owners listening right now thinking I could make my hiring choices based on someone's driving record. Wow. Yeah. Is that fair? (laughs) Right? So if you're running a business where, you know, I think the one I like the most is this maid service where you have a team of four and they drive that one vehicle and the primary driver may have a great record, but if she's sick one week or he's sick one week and has another driver take over, they need to be listed. They could increase the rates and that could be the difference between making money and losing money for small businesses that, you know, struggle to get by in many cases in this province. So I wonder if someone with a bad driving record may have a harder time getting a job because it means their employer are going to have to start, uh, you know, paying more for insurance. Wow. You could be asked that in a job interview. It could be uh, where, not like, where do you want to be in five years? It could be like, how many <laughs> points you got in your record? How many right. speeding tickets you got? <laughs> and, wow. And, and the other big thing here too is cancellation. So I renewed my insurance over the weekend. It expires this week. And I paid under the old system. So I asked the broker, 
what if I want to come back next week, cancel the premiums we just set up for, and sign up again under the new rate structure? You got oh, a cl- wow. you got a clean record. Not so, sort of. Okay, <laughs> so I well, maybe I don't want to go over there. I don't know if it's been entirely beneficial for us. I, I, <laughs> I didn't even get to the point of getting an estimate because what you told me you have to do is you have to cancel your policy. Then you have to get new license plates. Oh, wow. And I wonder if ICBC is ready for the potential of thousands and thousands of people thinking about wanting to cancel their insurance that are good drivers. Yeah. See, all of these others are getting a discount. I'm going to go pay the cancellation fee of 50 bucks. I'm going to get new license plates. I tried to look up online, and this is based on memory. They could be as high as $75, but it may be a little bit less. You pay that up front, and then you get signed up again under the new insurance rate. Two things there. Do they have enough license plates to deal with all of this? And then, <laughs> Why do you have to get new license plates? Why do you have plates? to do it? Why? Like, like, why can't they just process a cancellation and you know give you the new rates because it's such a substantial change? Wouldn't ICBC and the brokers want the um, consumer, those who are buying the insurance policy, to have the best rates possible and available to them? Okay, if you're someone... Okay, I, I'm trying to imagine a, a situation that could be advantageous for someone to cancel their insurance and, and and then renew it. There's lots, like anyone that's saving 150 bucks a year. So if you got a clean record, it'd be in your interest. Yeah, of to, course. To go in and cancel. Let's say you've already. Let's say you just renewed for a year. Yeah. And your your insurance doesn't expire until next summer. But I got a clean record. Maybe I go in and say, oh, forget that. Let's cancel that policy and let's do a new one because now I want the new rate and I'm going to get a cheaper insurance, right? Right. And and whether okay. you're on the, the boundary or not, we have one at-fault crash in the last you know 30 years of driving combined, my wife and I. And so yeah. are we a good driver? Are we a bad driver? Yeah. I just don't know. If you have no at-fault crashes, if you have more than 15 years of experience, you're not listing anyone with minimal experience, then it would be worth your while to cancel. And that could be tens of thousands. Thousands of people. Okay, we got one minute here. Let me ask you about the, the, the nitty-gritty politics on this thing, Richard, because okay, if, if a lot of people are getting a break on their insurance, that's obviously a popular thing and it's good. But if there are people out there who think they're a, a good driver and they find out they're a bad driver... Is the is the NDP politically vulnerable on this thing? A little bit. And I think yeah. this is going to be the big issue of the next election around keeping ICBC as it is or privatizing it. Move Up is already running radio ads on CKNW. They're the, union, the ICBC union. Exactly. Saying, you know, private insurance is like private oh. health care. Don't go there. We're already seeing this debate take place. I think there's a lot of political vulnerabilities around not just this change, but all the ICBC changes. Richard, good job. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure, Smitty. Thanks that, for having me. That is Richard Zussman, Global News reporter. The G7, which is wrapped up in France. There were some tensions and conflicts, leaders say, but there was still a lot of common ground as well. Let's listen to this report from Abigail Bimmen. Instead of the traditional final agreement spanning pages, leaders here at the G7 came up with a very simple one-pager. Still, leaders say they were pleased with progress overall. As a group, the G7 committed millions of dollars in a plan to help with fires in the Amazon. Separately, Canada announced its own $15 million contribution, and it will send water bombers. But that G7 aid decision was made without the American president at the table. Donald Trump skipped out on the session on climate change and oceans. And the leader who has caused the most discord is the one who sets the agenda next. The United States hosts the G7 in 2020. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Biarritz, France.
All right, as you heard Abigail mention there, Canada is offering $15 million in funding to help fight the wildfires currently raging in the Amazon. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says it is urgent that action is taken now to protect the rainforest. We could pretend that the situation in the Amazon is just part of a natural cycle, but that's not exactly what's going on here. The toll of human activity and extreme weather events on our communities, our environment, our health, and our world will continue to climb unless we take decisive action. All right. Justin Trudeau speaking at the G7 in France. Also in his speech, Trudeau covered a number of other topics. He reiterated his stand that Russia would not be welcomed back into the G7 by Canada. Canada does not support Russia's reintegration to the G7. Russia has yet to change the behavior that led to its expulsion in 2014 and therefore should not be allowed back into the G7. Russia's aggression and illegal annexation of Crimea is completely unacceptable. Canada has and will always defend Ukraine's sovereignty. All right, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking at the G7 there. The federal liberal government, meanwhile, has launched a choose forward is the federal liberal party here or is this, or is the government is launched to choose forward here as the election campaign slogan an official campaign theme is stamped on a series of national ads featuring prime minister justin trudeau they're beginning to air this t uh, this week on tv here's a clip the conservatives like to say they're for the people but then they cut taxes for the wealthy and cut services for everybody else in october we've got a choice to make Keep moving forward and build on the progress we've made, or go back to the politics of the Harper years. I am for moving forward for everyone. Oh, taking a shot at Stephen Harper there. Oh, okay. This is kind of interesting tactic here from Trudeau here. Not going after Andrew Scheer, bringing up Stephen Harper. What an interesting tactic there. The federal liberal slogan for this campaign choose forward here that's their election campaign slogan what do you think of that line what do you think about choose forward as the liberal campaign theme and slogan here do you think that's an effective one do you think that's a vote driver for trudeau and how about trudeau bringing up harper here what do you think about that tactic because a lot of people might have some bad memories of the harper days because trudeau wants to kind of capitalize on that do you think that's a good strategy or do you think that's just, he's talking about choosing forward or going forward. Why is he going backwards talking about Harper? You think that's kind of, I don't know, contradictory? Phone me on the buzz line here. Leave me a voicemail there and tell me what you think. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. 604-331-2899. International Dog Day being celebrated worldwide every august 26th which is today it's a day where dog owners can give some extra attention and maybe some special treats to their four-legged best friends we got a dog at home we absolutely love her she's getting a little old now and she's also got diabetes which is a drag but she's hanging in there. But she's getting pretty old, though. 
And I'll tell you though, this dog is like she's like a member of the family. She's like a little she's like a little child. She really is. We just love her. This year local seniors a local seniors care program is hoping to highlight how important dogs are to seniors in our community. And CKNW contributor Claire Allen visited a senior named Sandra to learn all about how her dash hound Chloe and what that means to her. Today is International Dog Day, and if you're an owner of one of the reported 8.2 million dogs in Canada, then you know the benefits of having man's best friend in your life. Everyone has something to gain from having a dog, but for seniors, the benefits of dog ownership are immense. I recently went to visit Sandra, a senior living on the west side of Vancouver, with her dog, a dachshund named Chloe. This is Chloe? Yes, Chloe. Oh my goodness. Everybody has to be nice to Chloe. Hi, Chloe. (laughs) Chloe is in her senior years as well, and it's obvious that she is the center of Sandra's universe. Oh, she's adorable. Isn't she sweet? Look at the big ears. They're bigger than her face. It's so so embarrassing. (laughs) How old is she? Don't know. Don't know. She's, she was a mature dog for sure. I sat down with Sandra and Chloe. Okay, okay, come on. Big jump. She's getting old. And she proceeded oh, so to tell me the story about how the little Dachshund came into her life. You're special, aren't you? Are you a special dog? Hmm? Chloe was found abandoned in a trailer park. Can you believe that? I mean, why would you get a dog? But luckily, she was rescued by a dog lover who gave her to Sandra. Months, you know, for the winter. But anyway, she phoned me and she said, I, I think her exact words were, I've got the perfect dog for you. And it was Chloe. Since then, Chloe and Sandra have formed an inseparable and mutually beneficial bond. The duo now share daily exercise outside, rain or shine. So that's where you came from, wasn't it? <laughs> Way south in the... Stupid people, nasty people didn't want you. And how so, long have you been have you haven't had, had her? I think it's probably a good 10 years. You know, I haven't kept track. Wow. Well, but she's so sweet. How could you not love her, you know? Yeah. She's a dear little dog. She doesn't cause any fusses. A new study from Home Instead Senior Care shows that many seniors find that a pet can provide the companionship and love they desire as they age, reducing the feelings of isolation and loneliness. Kim Lepp is the owner of Home Instead Senior Care. 86% of the respondents, they don't know how they could live without their pets. So, you know, they feel very, they would feel very lonely without them. That was a sentiment that was echoed by Sandra when I asked her what Chloe meant to her. One does change a bit as one gets older, but I don't sit here thinking about how different it is. I mean, I move more slowly, I think more slowly. I do less socializing, do less of everything because I'm slower. But I guess what you're asking, you know, the dog is here all the time. It's just the difference between being all alone and not being all alone. And a step further than that, you know that they care for you. Yeah. Now, dog ownership isn't for everyone. But research indicates that interactions with a dog or any animal can have a major impact on seniors. So today, on International Dog Day, if you have a dog in your life, consider taking a moment to share your four-legged friend with a senior. Kim Lepp from Home Instead Senior Care says she sees the benefits of pets in her work every day. I've seen it before where, you know, you bring a pet in and all of a sudden their face lights up and, you know, they might, especially with 
you know, people who have dementia, when they have an animal around them, it's just like that animal is just there and loves them unconditionally, right? You can actually see the energy change in the senior when they have their pet around. As for Sandra and Chloe, they continue to enjoy their days together with only a few small issues. She's a little bit overweight, but that's okay. That's okay. For AM 980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. Okay, Claire Allen and Chloe there at the end there. Nice job by Claire there on that one. That's International Dog Day, which is today. Very nice piece there on how dogs can help senior citizens. And oh, by the way, did you know that dog ownership can actually improve your health? Studies show that having a dog can lower your blood pressure, reduce your cholesterol, decrease your triglyceride levels, and contribute to overall better cardiovascular health and fewer heart attacks. What's more, (laughs) look at this. If you're a dog owner and you do have a heart attack, dog owners have better survival rates following the heart attack. See? See how nice it is and how healthy it is to have a dog? All right, let's talk about legal marijuana business in Canada now. Are cannabis companies a good investment? It sure seemed like a can't-miss stock pick when Canada legalized pot last year, but, man, we've seen a few pot stocks take a tumble here. Canopy Growth, one of the big cannabis companies, that stock is down something like 50%. Tilray, that's another one. That company has operations on Vancouver Island. They've taken a hit. My guest is Greg Taylor. He's the Chief Investment Officer for Purpose Investments in Toronto. He specializes in cannabis stocks. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hiya, Greg. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So I remember when cannabis was legalized last year, I thought to myself, boy, I'd be smart to put some money into some uh, marijuana companies, buy some pot stocks and Probably a lot of other people had the same idea, and I, I never did get around to it. Maybe that's a good thing. Do you think that some of these early adopters or, or people who are looking for value there off the bat, some of them have taken a haircut here, right? Yeah, and I think we're moving from that, uh, that phase of early investors down to the operators, and we're going to have to see really who comes out of this because we're now moving from the hype stage when a lot of companies were buying into the, the, the dream of this being the first uh, legal market, and a lot of investors globally were coming to Canada to try and figure out where they could get exposure to the sector. And now a year, almost a year or two the, after the legalization date, we're trying to figure out where the profits are going to be because there was a lot of hype that this is going to be a massive market and all these companies are going to have incredible profits and revenues. And yeah. and a year later, we're looking at these financials and realizing that they're, they're not being uh, realized yet. So there's a lot of people that are saying, did I get what I wanted and, and are all these companies going to make it? And I think now we're getting into the, the next phase of this uh, investment stage where we're going to figure out the winners versus the losers and try and figure out where the, the good value is. Some of those companies I mentioned off the top, Greg, uh, Canopy Growth, what's going on there? That's a big company. And how, how, how much is that stock down? Well, the stock's well off the, the highs, and, and I think what's really happened here is that last summer it got really exciting when Constellation Brands, one of the big uh, global beverage companies, made an investment in Canopy and, and took an over 50% stake. And and that really got everyone excited, almost validating the market and the strategy. And and what we've seen now is that they actually, as a Canopy, is now forced 
to actually deliver some of these these numbers because Constellation put in almost $4 billion of money into the company. And the last quarter of the Canopy reported just wasn't really wasn't really great. And at the same time, we had their CEO uh, basically get pushed out by the new Constellation uh, board. And what we're seeing with Canopy now is it's going to move away from being uh, the, the company that was almost buying everything in the sector and really growing at all costs. So I think it's now going to move to the phase of operations where it's actually going to try and deliver on the, on the goals. And it's going to move to good old-fashioned business practices of, of growing a good product at a low price that they can keep on the shelves and they can actually deliver to their customers because that really hasn't been the case as of yet. Okay, how about this company Tilray? I think I saw that stock at around two hundred bucks at one point, and I, I think when I checked this morning, it's it's around what twenty eight, twenty nine dollars. Yeah, yeah, Tilray is going to be a classic uh, investing example, and you can see this in a lot of different sectors when there's a lot of hype involved. And when you when you saw Tilray IPO uh, last summer, which was it, when it came to market, it, Tilray did something really unique. Was it was the first company to do a direct listing on the Nasdaq, and what that makes it interesting is that while Canada has been the first market to really legalize. Uh, it, for American investors, they had to come up to Canada to invest in these companies. Now, Tilray is still, at all intents and purposes, a Canadian company, though it's run by really American management and, and financed by Americans. So when they did their listing on the on the NASDAQ, it was the first uh, listing directly on the NASDAQ. So if you're an American investor that wanted exposure to to the cannabis sector, you could buy Tilray. And it got really exciting then. I think this opened the door for a lot of U.S. retail investors to get involved. So we saw the company IPO last summer at $30, and it quickly ran to $200. And that is really where you're getting the hype and the momentum behind the trade. But at the last almost $100 of that move was all momentum or short covering. And it really, when you get these parabolic moves, similar to what we saw in Beyond Meat uh, in the last uh, few weeks, that's where it's just, uh, it's more program and computer driven more than anything else. And then we had to have a shakeout. And now the stock's back into the $30 range, almost back to close to its IPO price. And this is where we're now trying to figure out what the fundamental value of the company is, and we've gotten away from some of the, the trading anomalies. Okay, the Beyond Meat comparison is is an interesting one, Greg. What's going on there with Beyond Meat? What happened there? Well, I think the interesting thing with Beyond Meat is that this is another company that the timing was absolutely perfect to pick up on a new trend that everyone's trying to find exposure to. And Beyond Meat, with their alternative to meat products, is, is perfect for a lot of different investment themes from from environmental to social uh, activism to, to the whole vegan trend. And people have been looking at ways to invest in this trend. And then when Beyond Meat IPO'd, uh, people are saying, perfect, this fits the theme they want to get invested in. And people jumped on it. And we had the stock again go from a, a $30 range on their IPO to quickly over 200 Very reminiscent of what's going on, what happened until right last summer. Yeah. And now we're seeing that pull back. And uh, I would expect this is going to be somewhat similar to the Tilray chart, that while it's a good company, the valuation got completely out of control. And we're seeing competitors come on. And the scarcity premium that it's got is going to, dis- is going to disappear. And it's going to go back to being a normal company. Okay, as I get down to some basic human psychology here, like when Canada legalized marijuana, a lot of people thought, this is a can't miss, I want to get in early, and like you said, a scarcity premium, so Canada may be one of the few markets where you could legally invest in some of these companies, and everybody piled in. Is that basically what happened? 
Oh, absolutely. And and what's really interesting that happened is that in the Canadian market, going back a few years, we've had different phases of what people are really excited about. Like we had the dot-com bubble almost 20 years ago, and then we had a lot of people that were playing the junior golds or the junior oil stocks, and that was where the speculative money went. And then all those have really faded away, and everyone's looking for the next big growth area. And for Canadians, the, the, the pot stocks suddenly became the next area that had this tremendous potential. And then, so we had people people looking at that for growth, and then added on that the first uh, global country to legalize. And we had a lot of international investors come to Canada and say, well, this is the only way I can buy into this trend, so I'm going to buy some of the Canadian companies to, to make sure I've got exposure to this in case it is the next big theme. But in the last few years, I think the biggest change that's happened is we've seen other countries roll out a lot faster than everyone expected. Certainly, the Americans are opening up way faster than everyone thought of a few years ago. It's not fully legalized on a, on a federal level, but on a state-by-state level, it's getting to, these are becoming huge markets, and there's huge companies being created in the U.S. with big brands. And I think people are starting to shift some of their investment dollars away from the Canadian companies to some of these U.S. ones, and beyond that, to some uh, some global players. Okay, does that mean then, Greg, that especially as American legalization continues, that some of these marijuana stocks are going to bounce back, or maybe I guess it's you know some of these companies are going to fail and some of them are going to thrive, right? Oh, absolutely. This is going to yeah. be a complete survival of the fittest coming out. Yeah. Uh, there were well over 100 companies that got licensed in Canada, and the company, the country is just not big enough to to have a market with that many players in it. And we're going to go through the, the period now where there's a shakeout between the winners and losers, and I think investors have to realize that not every one of these companies is going to survive, and you really need to do your homework and focus on companies that, that will. Do you think that uh, the way the government has handled the rollout of, of legal cannabis in Canada, and I'm talking both federal and provincial governments, and I, and I think in some cases it's been botched in many ways. Has that hampered the stock prices of some of these companies in, in any way? Oh, oh, absolutely. It, it's not helping at all. Um, I, I, there are a few problems with the way the governments have rolled this out. From a federal level, I, I think where they're, they're hurting them is the, the ban on advertising, and which is really going to impair the ability to create a brand. And what they seem to be doing is really relying off of the ban on the cigarette advertising, which is probably not a, a bad goal from an ethical point of view. But from a business building point of view, everyone's going to realize that brands are where the value is. And these companies are struggling trying to figure out how to create a brand that they can take globally when you can't advertise on it. So someone will figure out how to do this, but it's making it harder for the brand to be created that's going to be the, the Heineken of the sector that can go globally. And whether that can come from Canada is going to be a tough challenge to make. Uh, the other thing on the provincial level is they really have botched the rollouts from the retail uh, point of view. Uh, Ontario, for sure, has is no one was expecting it to take this long to get physical stores up and running, and and that's happening across other provinces as well. And when where people look, were looking at the financial projections for these companies, I think a lot of them had expected that there would be a more broader rollout across the provincial level, and the fact that that hasn't come have definitely dragged down on these financials. Greg, it's a really interesting topic. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, that is Greg Taylor, Chief Investment Officer, Purpose Investments in Toronto. He specializes in cannabis stocks, uh, some of which have taken a terrible tumble 
as you heard him described there. Man, I missed that one. I missed uh, I missed getting burned on that one. I thought about it. I, you know, I'm, I don't play the stock market practically at all, like almost nothing. But I thought, oh, I'd be so smart to put some money into these pot stocks here when they went into legalization. I mean, that is just like printing money. I would have got burned, burned like a big fat joint if I had done that.